I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. Hey, it's Will Friedle. And Sabrina Bryan. And we're the hosts of the new podcast, Magical Rewind. You may know us from some of your favorite childhood TV movies like My Date with the President's Daughter. And the Cheetah Girls movies. Together, we're sitting down to watch all the movies you grew up with and chat with some of your favorite stars and crew that made these iconic movies happen. So kick back, grab your popcorn, and join us. Listen to Magical Rewind on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by State Farm. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the campaign moment right now, wherever you're listening. Hi, this is Newt. 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the presidential race in my members-only inner circle club. You'll receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here is a special offer for my podcast listeners. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. And if you sign up for a one or two year membership, you'll get 10% off your membership price and a VIP fast pass to my live events. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. Use the code podcast at checkout. Sign up today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast and use the code PODCAST. Hurry, this offer expires February 14th. On this episode of Newt's World, as we continue to hear about the trade war with China and other countries, I wanted to attempt to provide context as to why the trade discussion is so important and how our international trade policy affects the prosperity of American businesses. On this episode, we'll look at how foreign countries cheat in global trade, including exploring the trade issues of subsidies, dumping, and transshipment. And you'll meet the CEOs of two American-owned businesses who will explain how their companies were affected by global trade inequities. My guests are David J. Ross, international trade specialist and partner at Wilmer Hale, Roddy Dowd, CEO of Charlotte Pipe and Foundry, and Paul Wellborn, 
President and CEO of Wellborn Cabinet, Inc. Here's David Ross of Wilmer Hale. Thank you for joining us to talk about the emerging complexities of the international trade. You're at Wilmer Hale now, but you really have uh, quite a background in international trade. When I went to law school, I focused on international trade and got a master's in international law in addition to my law degree and then went from law school to the Commerce Department to practice trade law. And I've been now uh, for 25 years doing trade in different capacities. Part of what I'm struck by as a historian is that the issue of trade negotiation and trade enforcement is constantly evolving. One decade's solutions just lead to really smart people figuring out new approaches. And then you have another generation finding ways to try to get around that. A long time ago, I was the ranking Republican on the aviation subcommittee, and I used to represent the Atlanta airport. It's a fascinating business, but it's one where our trade policies have not been as helpful at putting together the real world as opposed to the theoretical world. You've always had these challenges of foreign government-owned operations that find ways to get around the rules. That's right. You were working on the issue at the dawn of the open sky era. So historically, aviation was done through bilateral agreements where there were strict restrictions on who could serve the market, how many flights per day and whatnot. Then in the late 80s, early 90s, the U.S. developed this open sky approach where the basic theory was that the government would get out of the way and airlines would have full freedom to fly where they wanted based on market demand. It Actually, it worked out pretty well for the most part, but it's interesting. If you look back at the original DOT policy statement that they issued in 1995, one thing they touched on was the idea that subsidy could distort competition. But they said, and remember, this was the early 90s when capitalism was really on the march and you know, communism had fallen. They said, it's not really a big problem, though, though, because no government can control all aspects of its air traffic infrastructure. And that was true at the time, but it hasn't borne out in a few cases over the last 20 years. The big examples being in the UAE and Qatar, who have decided that they were going to make their aviation systems core to their economy and to really massively grow their airlines with a lot of subsidy to make that possible. And that's had a real impact on carriers around the world. They've basically been able to take oil and gas money to subsidize these airlines in a way that is totally alien from how we do things. That's exactly right. And it's an issue. The three areas are Dubai and Abu Dhabi and the UAE and then Qatar. They're all doing more or less the same thing. They're using money to massively expand their airlines. They're buying huge wide-body fleets of aircraft, much bigger fleets than anyone else. And because these countries are so small, they don't have a whole lot of a domestic market. So what they've done is they've gone out and they're targeting all the international markets and traffic from Asia to Europe, from Asia to the U.S. Instead of the traditional way of serving those markets, which was direct from the U.S. or one stop via Europe, they're capturing those traffic flows and flowing them through the Gulf. And they're doing that with really aggressive capacity into the market, really aggressive pricing, and then government subsidy, which allows them to keep flying despite the losses that that results in. As I understand it, 
even in their agreement to how they would cut back to some extent, they've now found new ways to get around that. That's right. So basically what happened was U.S. airlines went to the U.S. government and they said, look, we've documented around $50 billion in subsidies that have flowed into these airlines over the last 10 years. And it's had a really significant impact on the market. It's hurting everybody. And so the Trump administration negotiated agreements with Qatar and with the UAE that put some rules in place about market-oriented financing and transparency. And one important part of that was the UAE and Qatar both gave assurances to the U.S. government that their airlines weren't going to be launching flights between the U.S. and Europe. And that was really important because the overcapacity that's been put into the market has basically closed the Middle East to U.S. airlines. It's no longer profitable to fly there. So you can't anymore fly a U.S. airline to the Middle East. It's had a really big impact elsewhere. The U.S. airlines didn't want to see that happen on the transatlantic. And so that was a really important commitment. After the deal was struck, Cutter Airways, what they did was they bought a 49% interest in this little Sardinian airline called Meridiana, which was a tiny airline with about 10 aircraft. It was losing about $50 million a year. It was almost bankrupt. And what Cutter did was they put about $100 million into the airline in various ways. They gave them a bunch of Cutter Airways A330 aircraft said they were going to massively expand Meridiana, rename it Air Italy, and use that then to serve the U.S.-Europe market. They've announced flights to New York and to Miami, San Francisco, Los Angeles, Air Italy. They're doing what Qatar said it wouldn't do, and they're massively underpricing on fares and trying to buy market share. Qatar's found a way to violate the agreement by a clever loophole. That's exactly right. It's basically they're using them like a shell, really, a corporate shell that's Qatar Airways for all intents and purposes, except that it says Air Italy, but they're Qatar Airways aircraft. There's a lot of former Qatar Airways executives. The uniforms are Qatar Airways uniforms, but with an Air Italy logo. So it's really Qatar in all but name. Why has the U.S. government not responded? Well, they have been looking at it, and they've raised concerns with Qatar, but it's still in play. And we'll see where that issue is going to go, but it's not yet solved. Isn't not just with Qatar, isn't part of the game all around the world to take an advantage and then assume that if it takes two, three, four years, there's not much of a clawback capacity to get the money back once it's already done? You're exactly right. So you really can't put the genie back in the bottle. And so the question is, what's going to happen going forward? Here Italy right now, they have five of these wide-body aircraft from Qatar. So at this point, they have five U.S. routes, but they're talking about expanding that by about 400% up to 2025 craft fleet within the next couple of years. So they're just going to keep expanding. And if you don't do something about it, it's going to be too late. And then you have negative impact on the U.S. airlines. But isn't Alitalia also subsidized by a third party? The Italian government gave money to Alitalia a couple of years ago. And now the European Commission is looking at whether that money violates EU rules on state aid, because the EU has very strict anti-subsidy rules that affect what governments can give their companies. But ironically, they don't apply if the money is coming from a foreign government. So if Qatar gives money to Air Italy, that's not covered by the rules. But if the Italian government gives money to Alitalia, it is covered by the rules. So you could have a situation where Alitalia may have to pay that money back if it's found to be a violation, but there's no easy mechanism under EU rules for Air Italy to give its money back. Part of the reason I'm intrigued with this is not only do you have these two countries that have huge amounts of cash who are trying to dominate the international airline system, but you also have the specter coming down the road of whatever the Chinese are going to end up doing. 
both in terms of building aircraft and in terms of competing with uh, subsidies because they do it in a whole range of ways. Doesn't this require that we develop a much faster turnaround of fact-finding and complaining and filing than we currently have? We probably need better rules in the aviation space than we currently have on these kinds of issues, both more detailed and comprehensive rules on subsidy and then also rules on transparency. I mean, one of the challenges that's been an issue with the UAE airlines and the Qatar airlines and with Air Italy is for the most part, they don't publish their financial statements. And so it's very hard to dig up the evidence you need to show that there's subsidies. So if there were requirements to publish that kind of information, it would be easier to figure out sooner what's going on and to take action to address it. And if you have the subsidy rules, you can actually then ideally have prohibitions on the front end of what's allowable. And then if you can't get that, at least have the ability to challenge and get a remedy after the fact if it causes injury. Does the European Union anti-subsidy provision in that sense provide a something worth our looking at in terms of what are their enforcement mechanisms? It's an interesting rule. It applies within the EU. And so the U.S. would have to decide whether they wanted to have a rule within the U.S. that wouldn't allow state-level subsidies. But it's a good model for the idea of new international rules for subsidies. And it's actually something that the Trump administration has been working on in other contexts, like in the U.S.-Mexico-Canada agreement. They've got a really good chapter on state-owned enterprises that would prohibit a lot of what's going on in the aviation sector. And they haven't really done that because of concerns about what's going on in Canada or Mexico, but as you say, really to set the stage for the future and future negotiations. So if, for example, there were ever talks about doing any kind of, an, of a negotiation with China, you might be able to then have a precedent for good rules to get at this kind of problem at the front end. I mean, I'm personally fascinated, as I said, I used to be the ranking member of the Aviation Subcommittee. But as an everyday American, how does all this affect me? Why should I care about this? Well, it's interesting. I mean, obviously, with any issues with subsidies, there's good and there's bad from the consumer perspective. On the one hand, you get good service at low prices, and who doesn't like that? But on the other hand, first of all, it impacts U.S. jobs. Secondly, it can, over time, reduce choice and actually leave you in a worse position. So if we're staying on the aviation sector as an example, now that you've had the Gulf subsidies, it's no longer possible to fly a U.S. airline to the Middle East. The U.S. airlines have canceled all their routes to the Middle East because they weren't profitable anymore because of the overcapacity. Thirdly, because U.S. airlines have what's called a hub-and-spoke network system where you have your hubs that then are fed by smaller flights all around the country, as you start to lose your international flying, it then calls into question your ability to keep flying the smaller routes to like smaller U.S. cities and mid-sized and smaller towns. And so you start to have a breakdown in the system. Now, there are some other areas we have this subsidy problem, and maybe one of the most important is the question of solar cells and the degree to which the Chinese in particular have really cross-subsidized in ways designed to take control of the entire market. Can you comment on that? The solar industry is one that has been dramatically impacted by Chinese subsidies and Chinese dumping of solar cells in the U.S. market. Going back to probably about eight or ten years ago, you had a big growth in the Chinese industry and then a big growth in Chinese exports to the U.S. at really low prices, and it really hammered the U.S. industry. It's driven most of the industry out of business and left them in a really hard spot. So they filed what are called anti-dumping and countervailing duty cases. So those are challenging Chinese dumping practices and Chinese subsidies, and they got remedies from the Commerce Department. But what ended up happening was the Chinese then 
they moved their production to Taiwan or to Malaysia, Singapore, Germany to get around the duties and started manufacturing there instead. So the U.S. industry tried to follow them by filing new cases in all those places with some success. That's just one example of what's been an issue in China now for 20 years. It's really a massive subsidy in a whole range of sectors. Isn't this whole question of transshipment a significant problem in that sense that whether it's in steel or it's in aluminum or what have you? Transshipment is one of the big problems that U.S. policymakers have struggled to deal with, where countries have trade remedies put on their products, and then they try to find ways to get around those restrictions. Aluminum is one of the sectors that's really been impacted by Chinese subsidy. The Commerce Department had put trade actions in place on Chinese aluminum. What this particular producer is accused of doing was they sent what they described as aluminum pallets into the United States. And pallets aren't anything that was subject to trade duties. And then the idea was once they'd come into the United States without duties, then they would just melt them down and turn them into products that actually are covered by the duties. So it was a way of trying to circumvent those restrictions. And actually, according to the DOJ indictment that was announced, they avoided about $2 billion in U.S. tariffs through this mechanism. It's a really big case, I think the biggest case ever. And now they've been indicted. These various methods, whether it's dumping or it's transshipment or it is the kind of subsidies we described with Gutter and UAE, all of these things ultimately end up killing American companies and American jobs and cutting off the resources for future innovation. That's exactly right. You end up with a situation where there may be some short-term consumer benefit, but over the longer term, you're costing U.S. jobs and you're taking the jobs that would be created in the United States and they're being created in the foreign countries instead. And that's not good for the U.S. economy. It's not politically sustainable either. I really, really appreciate your taking the time. Well, it's been a real pleasure. Thank you. When we come back, Paul Welburn, CEO of Welburn Cabinets, discusses the trade issue of dumping that his company has faced. You've been listening to my conversations with Leo Grillo, founder of Delta Rescue. Delta Rescue is celebrating 40 years of saving animals and providing love to abandoned dogs and cats. Delta Rescue was the first no-kill shelter in the United States and now the largest care-for-life sanctuary of its kind in the world. The stories that Leo has shared on my show, like Delta, a black Doberman that started this organization, all the way to the 35 dogs Leo found while hiking in the Angeles National Park just warmed my heart. Delta Rescue continues to grow. The on-site hospital is staffed seven days a week with veterinarians and state-of-the-art equipment. Delta Rescue treats all diseases and conditions in up to 1,500 dogs, cats, and horses. Delta Rescue is an incredible cause, and we know we can't take our money with us when we leave nor do we want to leave it to the IRS. Let's help our furry friends today and support this amazing cause. Go to deltarescue.org newt for information on donations and getting involved. And right now, there's some new entertaining content streaming on the site. Newt's World listeners can go to the site for two free family movies today, Magic, starring Christopher Lloyd and directed by Robert Davi, and The Rescuer, starring Leo Grillo. Enjoy these two heartwarming movies for us animal lovers. Go to deltarescue.org slash newt. That's deltarescue.org slash n-e-w-t.
Here's Paul Welburn, CEO of Wellborn Cabinets. Your company goes back now 58 years? I started on this hill right here 60 years ago. My brother and I started making our first cabinets in Pensacola, Florida. We lived there for a short time and built our first kitchen down there in about 1957. Was your original market just around your part of Alabama, or what, what was your market? We started originally, my father being a home builder, remodeling, roofing, so on. My brother and I helped him as we grew up and actually started making cabinets for the home that he was building. And then you gradually developed this entire line of cabinetry. And when did you first notice the involvement of the Chinese? I would say probably 15 years ago, but the last four years, they have really stepped up. What they do, as they did in the furniture industry, they will start making the complex, labor-intensive parts. Then they'll move into the more complete tables, chairs, and so on. And pretty soon, if you're a furniture company, you became a distributor for them in, in most cases. And then they put their own distribution in, and they bypass the furniture companies altogether. And about 130 plants closed down around the year 2000. So the same thing basically has been happening in the cabinet industry the last few years. And fortunately, I think we got a, a little bit of a head start. I watched this thing through the furniture design magazines through the years, and they're doing exactly the same basic thing in the cabinet industry. And there's approximately 250,000 jobs at stake here. What are the Chinese advantages? What are the things they do that's different than just traditional competition? And the Chinese government will actually help the Chinese company. They'll give them, like in the case of plywood, they give them the logs. In our case, they'll do anything, what you call uh, dumping. If it costs $150 to build a cabinet, they'll sell it over here for 50 That's with the assistance of the government. What it is, uh, this is illegal, according to the laws of our country, to dump and cause us to lose our jobs in this country. Here's Stephen Welburn. What we find that when we started the gathering the data about two years ago, China has about 30 different subsidy programs that they offer companies over there, and they can range anything from giving the material to build the product, electricity bills, those kind of things on the subsidy side. And that's where when China does that, of course, it, that gives them an advantage, and all of a sudden they'll turn around and not only subsidize, but they also start dumping, and that's why these cases have two components. The dumping means they just come in and they look at an industry and they see a kitchen cabinet industry of about $10 billion and they say, we want it. So they undersell that market cheaper than what we can even produce it and sell it till the domestic market is gone. And then they'll raise their prices ultimately is what happens. That's what China has been doing. It takes them a while to navigate through a, an industry and learn you know, all the channels to market and things like that. But when they finally figure it out, that's when they go pretty much full force and since the recession is when they really have done that to our industry. Like my father said, we've been watching them for somewhere around 15 years coming to our trade shows. We manufacture everything in-house, make our own parts, components, and we do it all with domestic hardwoods, domestic plywoods, everything that we use. is We do our absolute best to keep domestic here. But when we look at the cost that they're selling product, we can take our labor cost and our material cost to zero and they're still under our prices. It's just unfair. And, and like I said, this story is in many different industries out there. This is just one of many. The thing that 
they have done with some of the trade laws in the last few years is you don't have to basically lose your industry before you can win a case. Here's Paul Welburn, CEO of Wellborn Cabinets. As Stephen said, we do everything we can to control our cost. So even at everything that we do in-house here, we cannot compete. And our customers, that say in the Northeast, for instance, when we travel in that area, they tell us they can no longer compete because the Chinese have put a warehouse around major cities, and they'll come in 20 to 40 and 50% below you in price. So it's just a matter of time. If something's not done, we'll go the way of the furniture and many other industries. And this is actually a lot of American jobs, isn't it? What's your estimate of how many jobs are involved? Approximately 250,000 jobs, according to the studies that's been done. We've kept the focus directly on our employees. We have 1,300 employees here, and that's what it's about, is keeping that way alive and, you know, the availability of those jobs for them. Stephen Welburn explains the impact Welburn Cabinets has had on their small town in Alabama. The cabinet industry is very diverse. I mean, it ranges from several companies that may have a $2.5 billion revenue, which is the largest in our industry, all the way down to a five-man shop that might have $1 million. And those are spread all across rural America. And that's kind of how diverse our industry is. These are small communities, and the town that we are in is only 2,500 people. It's a very rural setting, so that's what's at stake. Next, Roddy Dowd, CEO of Charlotte Pipe and Foundry, explains how the Chinese brazenly stole his company's U.S. trademark. I was delighted when the first sponsor of Newt's World was Oxford Gold Group. I love entrepreneurial startups of people who are eager, willing to go out and do new and different things. And as a historian, I know that having a balanced portfolio is a very important thing. And they offer financial information and background information that I think uh, is very helpful. So whatever you decide to do in the end, I think you'll find the information they have is really worthwhile. And that's why I'm delighted to introduce you to the Oxford Gold Group. Most of us still remember what happened to our 401ks and IRAs back in 2008 during the financial crash. In a flash, millions of hardworking Americans lost more than half of their retirement and savings. Many of us still haven't recovered those losses, even as the stock market reached record highs. Did you know that while the stock market crashed, the price of gold and silver skyrocketed? In fact, investors who had the foresight to diversify a portion of their retirement and savings before the 2008 meltdown watched as the price of gold and silver went up over 300%. While millions of Americans lost their nest eggs in the stock market, many others were able to make gains most people had never seen before. Call the Oxford Gold Group today at 1-833-327-9472 or visit oxfordgoldgroup.com slash newtsworld and request your free investor's guide. Investing in precious metals with the Oxford Gold Group is safe and secure. We tailor investment packages to suit any portfolio. Don't risk the future of your IRA, 401k, or savings on paper investments. Protect your retirement and savings with physical assets like gold and silver. Nobody knows when the next financial crisis will happen. Get prepared by talking to the Oxford Gold Group by calling 1-833-327-9472 or by visiting oxfordgoldgroup.com newtsworld Financial security is just a phone call away. 
Here's Roddy Dowd, CEO of Charlotte Pipe. Charlotte Pipe is over 100 years old. That's correct, sir. Our great-grandfather founded it in 1901. That's amazing. You're now the largest maker of cast iron and plastic pipe and fittings in the country. Is that right? That's correct, sir. We have great customers and great associates. Our cast iron foundry is in downtown Charlotte. We're literally a stone's throw from the Panther football stadium. And then our largest plastic pipe and fitting plant is probably 20 miles east near Monroe, North Carolina. And then we've got other plastic pipe and fitting plants in Pennsylvania, in Florida, in Alabama, in Texas, and in Utah. So you're a significant American employer. Yes, sir. We've got about 1,540 great folks working with us. That's great. Now, as I understand it, the Chinese competition for you is sort of amazingly direct in how much they're just trying to mimic you out of business. Can you talk a little bit about this company in China? We've been fighting the Chinese for over 30 years where they've dumped subsidized product into the United States on cast iron. That's been our major battle. A couple of years ago, one of our international guys was at a trade show, and he was walking down an aisle, and he saw a company called Charlotte Pipe and Foundry. And he kind of scratched his head and said, well, I work for Charlotte Pipe and Foundry. In this case, there's a company in Shanghai called Yite Plastics, and they know that we've got a brand name that's recognized around the world, and they lifted it and registered it in China in 2010. And in fact, they've got our trademark on a neon sign on a building in Shanghai. And of course, that just shocked the heck out of us. They can't ship their products with their name into the United States because we've got trademark registration here. But when we try to ship into China, which is, of course, practically impossible since they block Americans out, but certainly in other Asian countries, which is the real Charlotte Pipe. So we've got two issues. We've got the subsidy and dumping, which is the day-in, day-out stuff on both cast iron and plastics, and then we've got the intellectual property theft issue where they've stolen our trademark. If you get an American trademark, I guess that doesn't automatically protect you worldwide, does it? I mean, do you have to go around and get trademarked in every country, or is there some kind of mutual recognition of trademarks? You really need to go country by country to register your trademark. We don't sell in in all of the countries in the world, but the ones that we do target, we now have our trademark registered. Did you only start doing that after you saw the Chinese had stolen it, or had you already begun doing that before you knew about the Chinese? It was such a brazen thing that it got our attention, but we just, of course, didn't expect anybody would lift our trademark. It just was beyond the pale. But with the Chinese, nothing's beyond the pale. The most important thing is is that we've finally been successful in bringing two trade cases before the International Trade Commission. One case we filed in 17 and the other one we filed in 18 on cast iron pipe and fittings, and we won them both and achieved significant 
countervailing duties against the Chinese, which has finally leveled the playing field after having our guts spilled out for 30 years. Finally, we've got a level playing field. What would you say to if somebody in a different industry came to you and said they're beginning to have the problem you had, what would your advice be? First advice that I would have is make sure that you're measuring how much of the product is coming in. Know exactly how much is coming in. And if you have a handle on how big the market is, try to measure the shift from domestic production to foreign production. And if you see a measurable impact both on your selling price or your market share, the next thing you need to do is engage, if you have the financial means, you need to engage a good trade attorney in in Washington. In that part of the law, there are just a few good specialist trade lawyers, and they're all in D.C. They're expensive, but they know what they're doing. It's a very peculiar part of the law, and you've got to get a specialist. I'd measure the stuff, then I'd engage a trade attorney to see if you've got a legitimate case to bring before the ITC and commerce. And the good ones will be very honest with you and say, there's not enough damage. You're premature. Now, that's the real fatal flaw in our trade laws, and they've been fixed a little bit. It's like a patient who's been shot and he's bleeding out. Well, they're going to triage you at commerce or ITC based upon who's down to the last unit of blood. And so you've got to be pretty badly hurt to be able to bring a case, though there has been a little bit of a remedy in recent years in the trade law that at least you don't have to be on your last breath present a case. But it's essential to get a good attorney. It sounds to me like we're going to need to revisit some aspects of our trade laws to provide greater strength for American businesses and to provide greater sanctions against people who are deliberately cheating. We definitely do. Listen, this has been very, very helpful. We really appreciate what you're doing for the American worker by highlighting this. Charlotte Pipe, I've had the most wonderful people, and they deserve good high-paying jobs, and highlighting the trade thing helps them have a secure future. And so we're very grateful that you would include us. One thing is clear. The Chinese are cheating, and both the American people and American businesses are suffering. One of the things we've uncovered in this episode is how sometimes small American-owned businesses simply cannot afford the expense of high-profile trade lawyers who are mostly based in Washington, D.C. It is time for us to reevaluate the laws around trade and make sure that if an American company is being harmed, that there are ways it can protect itself and can guarantee that it can afford to stay in the game even when the Chinese government is cheating. We have to empower American businesses to defend themselves, and that's going to require rethinking some of our trade laws and how they are applied. Thank you to my guest, David Ross of Wilmer Hale, Roddy Dowd of Charlotte Pipe and Foundry, and Paul Wellborn and his team at Wellborn Cabinets, Stephen Wellborn and Shadrach McGill. 
You can read more about how foreign countries cheat in global trade on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newt's World is produced by Westwood One. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our editor is Robert Borowski, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. Our guest booker is Grace Davis. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. The music was composed by Joey Salvia. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360 and Westwood One's John Wardock and Robert Mathers. Please email me with your comments at newt at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, you know him for hit shows like Dirty Jobs and his podcast, The Way I Heard It. Mike Rowe is a great entertainer and a great American. For Labor Day, we're sharing stories about the skilled workers who have crossed Mike's path, the importance of work, and Rowe's fascinating life. My grandfather was ill, 90 and dying, and my mother called me at my desk at CBS and said, Mike, before your grandfather dies, wouldn't it be nice if you could turn on the television and see you doing something that looked like work? I laughed and I said, yeah, that would be great. And so I went out and I started filming a series that turned into Dirty Jobs. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. The Westwood One Podcast Network. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed... Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network.